You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together. And uh, if we haven't met, as Tim said, my name's Tom. I'm one of the leaders here. And this morning, we're going to be going through uh, the next installment of our First Corinthians series, uh, which we're five parts into now. In two weeks' time... Uh, We're going to be giving uh, in a big way. We're going to be giving joyfully into uh, our journey offering, which is to raise funds for the refurbishment of the former Odeon uh, Cinema. Uh, We have, over these last few years, incredibly, miraculously raised hundreds of thousands of pounds for that purchase and refurbishment. And uh, over the the two offerings, one in two weeks' time and one in March, we are aiming to raise a further £150,000 towards our future uh, you know, our building there, our facility there, and works will be going on in the months to come. And in two weeks' time to consider, how can I give into that? Or even before that time, rather than on the morning thinking, oh, it's the offering today, uh, be thinking before then, praying, how can I give into this? I know that there's some people who have been selling old unwanted furniture online to raise money, which is wonderful. Others have said, I want to go down the car boot and get rid of lo- loads of stuff I don't need anymore just so that I can contribute to this in some way. Uh, If you share a bank account with someone, my advice would be to tell them first, uh, talk with them first about your plans to give. You don't want any unpleasant surprises at the end of the month uh, to have to explain. But uh, we are, it's going to be an exciting time, giving in two weeks' time, giving joyfully. We're going to celebrate because Jesus is our God and money isn't our God. Amen? And we're going to give away uh, our money to what we believe is going to be an amazing thing. Okay, let's come to today's message. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians is a letter in the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible. And it was written by a man called Paul, um, who you might have heard of as St. Paul or as the Apostle Paul. And he was a missionary in the early church. He once hated Jesus. He hated Christianity. He wanted to do away with it altogether. He was quite a powerful guy. He had people thrown in prison and uh, people beaten and so on for that. And some even killed for their uh, faith. And then he met Jesus one day. He met the risen Jesus one day. And uh, his life was completely changed. And he went around telling everyone, Jesus is the savior of the world. You need to know him and put your trust in him. You need to love him as your God. And he went around planting churches, starting churches wherever he went in the Middle East and in Europe. And Corinth was a place in Greece where he had started a church. About 20 years after Jesus had uh, walked the earth, he started this church in Corinth in Greece. And then he had moved on about 18 months later. And he had heard some things about what was going on in the church, some things that really distressed him. And so he wrote to them to put some things straight with them. There was loads and loads of mess in the church at Corinth because the church at Corinth was full of imperfect people. Every church is full of imperfect people. And if you think you found the perfect church, you only need to look a little closer to realize it's not perfect. But if you really think you found the perfect church, then you only need to join it for it to become imperfect. (laughs) Christians are imperfect people who have simply placed their faith in Jesus and have said, Jesus, I trust in you for my salvation. Change me. Make me more like you. The people being baptized today, the, the, the couple of people in the first service and the three in this service are not perfect people. You, you, if you think they are, then go and get to know them some more. You'll realize they're not perfect people. 
they have placed their faith in a perfect saviour. And, uh, and so Paul is writing to an imperfect church. But let's be honest, they were spectacularly imperfect, this church at Corinth. They had got some things very wrong. They were having disputes about which Christian leader they most liked. And that sounds petty because it really is petty. They were having disputes about it. Paul, in this part of the letter that we're going to read together, is addressing that. They were taking each other to court. They were getting caught up in all kinds of uh, wrong stuff that as we go through this book, we will learn more about. So let's pick up the, the passage. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's the big number. And verses 1 to 7, which are the small numbers if you have a Bible. And the verses will come up on the screens around the room as well. This is what Paul says, look at Apollos and me as mere servants, servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. And then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I have been saying. If you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Shall we pray before we just uh, tuck into this passage together? Father, would you help us as we open your word? Help us to understand what you're saying to us through it. Help us to apply it and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so it's X Factor season. X Factor is in its 15th uh, season, and on Saturday nights, you can be treated to a bunch of this delusional wannabes going up before thousands of people and before a panel of judges to sing their hearts out in the hope that they might one day be famous, that they might one day be wealthy and have people chanting their name. I love the first few episodes of The X Factor. In fact, usually I lose interest by episode five or six. The reason I love the first few episodes of X Factor is because you have these auditions where you're never quite sure if the person's going to be good or bad. And I don't know if you do this game, but my wife Sarah and I, uh, we do this, we, 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 we see the person, we're introduced to the person who's about to go and audition, and we say, are they going to be good or bad? And we place our bets there, are they going to be good or bad? And usually you can tell that they're going to be good because some music starts to build as they're talking to the camera, and they have a sob story about how their really precious cat has recently died, and how the song they're going to sing is for the cat, and it's in the memory of their cat. <laughs> And you just start to get the impression this is going to be good. And that by the time they get on the stage and they, they share their name with the judges and uh, they, they start to explain their sob story, you think this is going to end up with everyone on their feet shouting out their name and they're going to get through to the next round. And the music starts to build and it gets all emotional. 
and so on. So I love that part. I love that. Is it, are they going to be good or are they going to be bad? I also love it when people who are really delusional get up to sing and they really think that they have what it takes to be a pop star. They, they go up there and they're very serious and they start, to, uh, they start to sing completely out of tune and you think, man, they, they have no idea. They, don't, they do not assess themselves very soberly at all. But the reality is, whatever the person's situation, whatever their background, whatever their sob story, whatever their situation, they have to come before this guy on the screens. They have to come before Simon Cowell. In fact, all of the very serious contestants on X Factor, they know that it's Simon Cowell's opinion that matters most. Why? Because he's the one who has risen to the very top. He's the one who has taken some uh, pop stars from the very bottom to the very top. He's the one who's managed One Direction and Little Mix and all these other acts. He's the one who's earned the big bucks. So really, when they're singing, they're singing in front of thousands of people. They might be singing before the panel, but they really know that they've got to impress Simon Cowell. Because if they don't impress him, they've got no chance. Now, Simon Cowell is well known for his scathing insults and... In fact, this week I went online and I, I read an article, the 33 best Simon Cowell insults. I don't know why it was 33, but it was. And these are some of my favorite of them. He said to one person, that sounded like Stevie Wonder, but with a really bad cold. He said of another person's performance, it was like ordering a hamburger and only getting the bun. This is one of my favorites. He said to someone, do you take singing lessons? And the person said, yes. And he says, do you have a lawyer? Get a lawyer and sue your teacher. And this is probably my favourite one after a long performance. He said this. That song was like going to a zoo or something. I mean, the noises were beyond anything I have ever, ever heard. Your mouth is far, far too big when you sing. I mean, it was like looking into a cave. I've never seen anything so huge in all my life. It doesn't matter what your sob story is. It doesn't matter what your look is, whether you have the, uh, the, the pop star look. It doesn't matter what your confidence level or your experience is. If you go on X Factor, you have to stand before Simon Cowell. You have to face the judgment of Simon Cowell. And while the singers might protest and their embarrassing grandma might come on the stage to give Simon what for, what stands ultimately is Simon Cowell's verdict. They can be told by other people that they are a really good singer, but it really only matters what Simon has to say. And Paul starts this chapter by confidently declaring to the Corinthians that it really doesn't matter what they think of him, that it really doesn't matter whether they think he's better than Peter or Apollos or whatever. What matters to Paul is that Jesus is the ultimate judge, that Jesus is the one who will actually one day judge Simon Cowell. And there will come a time, an appointed time, when this judge will judge everyone and he will issue his ruling. As far as Paul is concerned, he's living before an audience of one. Now, it's quite popular for people to say, only God can judge me. It was made famous by Tupac a number of years ago in his song, Only God Can Judge Me. Other rappers and other people have said it since then, only God can judge me. By way of saying, basically, I don't care if you think what I'm doing is right or wrong. You know, only God can judge me. Not really believing that God can judge them, but saying so. And I read this great uh, article the other day, a Christian satirical website, which says this, man with only God can judge me tattoo suddenly realizes God can judge him. <laughs> Paul knew that it was only God's judgment that really counted. That fact to Paul 
gave him great confidence and great humility. Great confidence and great humility. It gave him confidence because he knew that despite all that he had ever done, all that he had ever thought, all that he had ever said that was so offensive to God, he knew that his sins had been forgiven. He knew that Jesus Christ had taken his place and that he had actually taken the place of Jesus in terms of receiving the perfect record of Jesus for himself. Paul had confidence because he knew that when it came to the judgment day, he could stand before Jesus and know that he was forgiven. But it also gave him humility. And we see in this passage Paul's humility that he was humbled by this good news as well. I want to speak for a few minutes about how the good news, how what Jesus has done for us, this gospel that we celebrate, that just basically means good news, how it makes us humble. So we've got six points on this. Firstly, humble people assess themselves soberly. We look at verse 1. He says, look at Apollos and me as mere servants. In light of the good news, Paul didn't allow his position or his title to puff him up. He was quite well known by this point. A lot of people knew of him and he had influence within a number of different churches, but he didn't see it as something that puffed him up. He realized the wrong that he had done in his life. He realized that it was all a gift that Jesus had saved him, not because of what he had done. He had had Christians killed for their faith. If anyone was ill-deserving of God's favor and grace, it was the Apostle Paul. We're all ill-deserving, really. But if anyone was really ill-deserving, it was Paul. He didn't believe the hype about himself. He didn't allow any leadership or influence or notoriety to go to his head. He didn't entertain some faction in the Corinthian church putting him up on a pedestal. As Tim shared last week, Paul saw himself as a roadie to the main act. He saw himself as one who was simply preparing the church for the main act. He says, I'm just a servant of Jesus. He hasn't got any puffed up ideas about himself. When we grasp the gospel, when we take it to our hearts, and we see that there's only one judge whose opinion really counts, when you remember that, and you remember that you are secure in your identity as a child of God, you get free from riding this anxiety-driven roller coaster of people's opinions. You get free from that. You get free from thinking, do they accept me? Do they like me? Am I in with them? Will they receive me well? Do they think I'm cool? When you grasp that you are secure in your identity in Christ, that the one whose opinion really matters has declared that you are a child of God, has declared that you are set free, has declared that you are forgiven, you actually get free from riding this roller coaster of thinking, what do people think of me? Am I accepted? Many of us here will be able to relate to that. No, we grasp that we have come from a place where we were enemies of God, but God has brought us into his family. He's committed himself to us. That's good news. So firstly, we assess ourselves soberly. Secondly, humble people let the Lord do the judging. Now, in the next chapter that we're going to delve into next week, it seems that Paul says something contrary to this because he actually tells the Christians at Corinth that they're not to judge those who are not in the church, but actually when it comes to your community, your Christian community, there are times when we have to say to someone, hey, the way that, that you're living your life, the way you're behaving here, 
it doesn't line up with what you say that you believe about Jesus. It doesn't line up with your, the fact that Jesus is Lord of your life. So there are times when we actually have to speak into other people's situations, but this is completely different. He's saying here in verses 4 to 5 that when it comes to judging the world, this is God's job. And there will be an appointed time for that where the world will be judged. Jesus Christ will judge the whole world. And he will bring our darkest secrets to light and he will reveal our private motives. All the stuff that we've tried to hide, all the stuff that we think no one knows about, all the stuff that we've done and people haven't really known the real reason why we're doing it, God sees it. And for Paul... The good news was that although he had done such evil in his life, in public and in secret, he needn't fear the coming judgment. He needn't face it with fear in his heart. The coming judgment sobered him, but he didn't fear being cast out of God's presence forever because someone had been judged in his place. Jesus had been judged in his place. Jesus, as Paul writes elsewhere, Jesus who loved him, and who gave himself for him. And so whilst the salvation that we receive is free, it's bought with Jesus' precious blood, and our right to live in his presence is never about anything that we can do, there is a judgment coming to each of us. And how we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us will be judged. And there will be some measure of reward or even a sense of loss, even in heaven. I don't even know how that works. But I want to stress that we don't arrive in God's presence now and in eternity through what we do. That's all about what Jesus has done. But we see in chapter 3 that there will be, be for some who haven't built well on that foundation of Jesus, there will be almost a sense of loss in heaven. You think, how does that work? Because we're going to be with Jesus. But we need not face the judgment with fear of condemnation. Knowing that we're all facing judgment, we are humble when it comes to the faults of others. We simply want to point people to the one who died in their place. We don't have a superior, uh, superiority complex. We don't have a superior mentality. Christians should never be or should never uh, come across as superior. We must never do that. Many of us here would say we, we're Christians. We must never come across as superior, looking at others and thinking, well, you know, it was obviously because I was extra special that uh, God pulled me out of my sin. It was obviously because I would put some things right in my life that he saved me. No, we mustn't ever come across in a superior way. Christians are forgiven people, not superior people. Number three, humble people understand it's all a gift. So in verse uh, six and verse seven, Paul stresses that everything we have is a gift from God. How could we boast about anything? How could we boast about any measure of progress or maturity in our lives? How could we boast about it as if we had done it? How could we say, yeah, well, I've got to the point where I'm at because I, I worked really hard. How could we do anything other than say it's a gift from God? How could we boast about any insight we might have spiritually or any gift that we might have? This is what another problem uh, that was present in the Corinthian church is that people had these spiritual gifts. Well, I can speak in different languages, uh, heavenly languages. I can prophesy and I can do this and I can do that. And it had become a bit of a, a, an opportunity to show off almost. 
And Paul's saying here, well, how can we say any of this is other than, anything other than a gift of God's grace? How can we boast about any material possession or provision that we have as if we had earned it through being great people? I don't mind what political stance you have, but you can never look at those less, um, with, with less provision than you and say, well, you know, they deserve to have less than me. I, I am a really righteous person and, you know, God has provided for me because I, you know, I'm particularly right. No, we actually, when we see that it's all a gift, it, it not only leads us to worship, it not only leads us to say, God, you're so good to me, I don't deserve it. It leads us to have compassion as well to those in situations where people are struggling and so on. We don't look at them and say, well, they had it coming to them. No, we actually have compassion. Fourthly, humble people don't assume they are the finished article. In verse 8, Paul uh, uses a bit of sarcasm, and I love it uh, when he does this. It sort of appeals to my British sense of humor. He says, oh, I see you're already kings. You're already rich, are you? He's saying here that the people in Corinth, they really consider that they had it all together. They really consider that they are the finished article. Well, humble people, they actually see that we have more growing to do. Humble people accept that we are not the finished article. We have a whole lifetime of sanctification to go through. That means the process by which we're made more like Jesus. And we'll only be finished when we're with him. It says that we will be, we'll see him, we'll be with him, and then we'll be like him. And until that day, he's got things to chip off us, things to work away on us. There's always more growth for us. As believers, there's always things that God wants to do in your life to change you, to make you more like Jesus. So we're never, we're never saying, well, I'm the finished article. We can never speak of others. And how often do we do this? Speak of others' situation with that sense of, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. No, we actually accept we are not the finished article. So we stay humble knowing we're living for an audience of one. Same goes for us as a church. We can never say, well, we're the finished article. There's nothing out of balance here. We've got it all nailed down. No, we, we say, God, you're the one whose opinion really matters. We're wanting to line up more and more with what you want our church to be. We don't get proud. We say, stay humble. Jesus is the only judge whose opinion counts. Whether we receive praise or ridicule, Jesus is the judge whose opinion counts. Fifthly, humble people take the lowest place to serve others. I don't know if you want to be in leadership here. Um, This isn't a great advertisement for it, for Christian leadership. Um, This is what Paul says about his life. Even now we go hungry and thirsty and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. And yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everyone's trash right up to the present moment. Paul describes his ministry as being a fool for Christ, a fool for Jesus. People ridicule him because of what he says about Jesus. But he's willing to undergo this. He's willing to undergo hardship and tiredness and ridicule to spread the gospel that others might come to know this good news, that others might grasp that Jesus gave his life for us, that we might know God who gives life in all its fullness. If Paul was still living for the praise of earthly judges, he couldn't live this way. In fact, he says it in Galatians chapter 1. If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So humble people want to serve 
others with the gospel, but that's very different to being people pleasers. It's very different to being people pleasers. We must see Jesus as the judge whose opinion really matters. And that allows us to take the, the place of lowliness in order to serve others. Finally, humble people are worth imitating. In verse 16 of chapter 4, Paul says, I urge you to imitate me. And later on in chapter 11, he says to the Corinthians again, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We read about Jesus in the Bible, the humble king. He's the one who was truly humble. He had nothing to prove to anyone. We read in in the Bible that all things were created through him and for him. He deserved to stay in heaven, enjoying the adoration of the angels. He deserved to stay in heaven, enjoying fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And as he looked upon the world, he didn't say of our mess, that's not my problem. Sometimes we do that, don't we, in the workplace? Crisis is happening in the office and we sort of sink down into our keyboard a little bit. Keep our heads down. That's above my pay grade. I'm not getting involved with that. I'm not getting involved with that issue in in the office right now. It's not my problem. Well, Jesus didn't see that. He didn't say that. He stepped down into our world out of his great love for us. He chose to become human, born into poverty in an obscure part of his country, a part of his country where people said nothing good can ever come from there. That's the humble king, dependent on his mum and dad, learning a trade, working hard. Then as he grew older, he had no fixed abode. He said, I haven't got a place to rest my head, traveling about, despised by many people. People misunderstood him. People mocked him. His own siblings mocked him. They didn't understand. And then he was betrayed in the most callous way by one of his closest friends who sold him to the authorities for a few pieces of silver. Handed over to these brutal authorities who mocked him, spat at him, who beat him up, whipped him. And Jesus... We've just heard about the one through whom all things were created. He could have called down at any point thousands of mighty angels. He could have called them down. These weren't, as we often say here, these weren't chubby babies on Christmas cards. These were fearsome beings. And one word, thousands of them could have rocked up and kicked those soldiers to touch. Any point. And yet the Bible says, like a sheep before his shearers, Jesus was silent. He went through it all for you and I. It was part of God's plan. He's the one who carried his cross as the crowds looked on, laughing at him. He's the one who had nails thrust through his wrists and his feet. He's the one who, on the cross, wore a crown of thorns that was mocking him. King of the Jews, and there before his mum, before his mates, he breathed in agony, in naked, humiliating, humiliating death. 
That's the humble king. That's the humble king. But we know that he didn't stay on the cross. That's why we don't have crosses around here with Jesus still on it, because we, we don't believe he stayed there. The story didn't end there. The Bible, again and again, tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Jesus said to his disciples that all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus couldn't have humbled himself any more than he did. He couldn't have got any lower, could he? At the lowest point of human history, his exhausted, bloody body, breathing his last breaths on the cross and him crying out, it is finished. It couldn't have got any lower than that. But a couple of days later, as his body laid in a guarded tomb, wrapped up, prepared for burial, God exalted the humble. God raised him from the dead. God breathed his life into him. And having shown himself to his disciples and giving them his final teachings, having appeared to hundreds of others who testified in the years to follow that Jesus had risen. Jesus ascended to heaven. And this is what it says in Philippians chapter 2 about this Jesus. This is what Paul says in another of his letters. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ has the name that is above every other name. His name is far, far higher than any name that you think is worth being in with. Any name you think, if only I had their approval, if if only they liked me, if only they thought highly of me. Jesus has the name that is far above their name. And he is inviting you this morning to place your faith fully in him, to place your trust fully in him, so that you will know that the one whose opinion really counts, the judge whose opinion counts far higher than Simon Cowell's opinion, and far higher than any other opinion of anyone whose opinion you think is really worthwhile, he will judge you as blameless on that day because of what he's done for you on the cross. That is what you are invited to today. That is what we can celebrate today if we already know it to be true for ourselves. That Jesus Christ died in our place. That he took our place on the cross. And now God has exalted him to the highest place. That he has the name that is above every other name. One day we will face that Jesus. One day we will come before him. And that might be a very daunting prospect. That everything in secret will be revealed. Every hidden motive of the heart will be brought to light. That might be a very daunting prospect, but friends, let me tell you this. If you know Jesus Christ, you do not need to fear that day. Because on that day, you'll say, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I own that. Yeah, that, that was me. We might have a head in the hands moment, but then we'll, cut, we'll suddenly realize, but this Jesus, you the judge, you've paid for it all for me. Jesus, you did it all for me. And I, I, I'm putting you on the stage in my audition. You're the one going in my place. You're the one who's performed for me. I couldn't do it. I would go up on the stage and fall to pieces. But Jesus, you did it perfectly. 
Jesus, you absolutely lived a life I couldn't live. And friends, this morning, I want to invite you, I want to urge you to say to Jesus, I'm counting fully on you. To say, Jesus, I, I know that I can't live by the life by my own standards that I want to live, let alone yours, but I'm trusting fully in you. Um, that's what faith is. It's not just some sort of mental, I, I believe that to be a fact. Tick. No, it's a trusting yourself fully to someone else. It's leaning heavily on Jesus and saying, I can't do it, but I know that you did. I know that you fully satisfied your father. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you would pray this prayer or a prayer like it in your heart and with sincerity, then I want to, I want to invite you to tell someone today, to tell someone that you've come with, to tell me, to tell Tim who's been hosting this meeting, to tell someone that you know is part of this church perhaps, to tell someone, say, I prayed that prayer that Tom led us in. We would love to hear from you. I am totally interruptible when it comes to that. I really want to hear, like, if you, if you prayed that prayer, please come and butt in and say, Tom, I prayed that prayer. Uh, that won't be rude at all. Just come and do it. Because we want to help you on your next steps. Because this is a journey. We're called to follow Jesus. And we want to help you in that. And, and it may look like for you the next step is getting baptized. Because we're not calling you into something private here that's just between you and God. We're calling you to something that is a family and a community. And it may be that you get baptized in a nice, fairly warm tank like this. Or it might be you get baptized in the sea. I, I, I was reminiscing earlier, I baptized a very good friend in the sea two years ago, right in the middle of Storm Doris. And we all got baptized before we'd even got in, pretty much. A big wave crashed over us. You can see the video if you like. But what matters is the obedience to Jesus. And his word says, believe and be baptized. And we're not calling you to something that's just between you and God. You can't live this life on your own. We want to help you to move forward in this. And it might be that you even think, I want to get baptized today. Well, come and speak to me after the service. We might well do that. I had a call at 7.15 this morning from a good friend that I've been walking with for some time number of us have and he said I'm ready to be baptised and we baptised him in the first service you know I don't like receiving calls at 7.15 in the morning but if you want to call me at 7.15 in the morning to say you want to get baptised that's okay because it's about being obedient to Jesus so I'm going to pray right now and I believe there's some around the room here who are going to do business with God I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning I'm just going to ask you to tell someone if you've prayed this and tell someone this morning or this afternoon. God, I know that I have fallen short in so many ways. God, I know that I will one day be judged and all of the things I've tried to hide, all of the hidden secrets, all of the hidden motives that I've tried to make look good, I know they will be revealed. And Lord God, I know that I don't measure up when I really think of all that I've done. But I acknowledge and I believe that Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross to take the punishment for that, to take my place. 
And I trust you that that means I can be completely forgiven. I trust you that that means I can come into your presence now and in eternity. Please forgive me of all I've ever done wrong. Please lead me in your ways. I live for you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.